Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 30 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. And as you know, we've been hosting a series of conversations focused on racial justice. In episode 27, we spoke with Dr. Vince Bantu at Fuller Seminary about ways to better support our Black churches during times of tragedy and ways to begin dismantling white supremacy. In episode 21, we spoke with Dr. Russell Jung, who is co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate, about how oppression and marginalization of Asians has led to an Asian American theology of exile in ways that believers can better support our Asian communities especially during this time, as we've been seeing more visibility of xenophobia and anti-Asian racism. Today, we're moving into a conversation on reparations and the Christian calling to bring about racial healing and repair. Our guests are pastors Duke L. Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson, and they share a historical and theological case for reparations and address the various thefts of white supremacy that continue to hurt our black communities. This is the topic of their latest book entitled Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. This is one of those books that will open your eyes to the systemic sins of racism and white supremacy in the United States, which continues to cause racial brokenness and social inequities. It's a book that will bring you awareness of black pain and the Christian's calling to bring about healing and reconciliation. Now, as you know, the complicated and sinful history of racism in the United States and its impact today doesn't have an easy solution. And their book isn't designed to give us step-by-step -step instructions on how reparations should work. It's a theological framework to help us think creatively on how to better love and care for our oppressed and marginalized communities that are hurting due to racial brokenness. And no doubt, there are dozens of arguments against reparations. Some critics to reparations argue that it's unjust and therefore immoral to require people who had nothing to do with slave ownership or racial injustice of the past to be liable for those sins today. Others argue that it's impractical to figure out economically who should be compensated and then who should pay and for how long. And others argue that no one group benefited exclusively from black slavery and racial injustice, so it's problematic to penalize any other group. Many of the arguments in favor or against reparations use justice as the chief aim. So how do we come up with a solution to systemic racism in an equitable way and not create further inequities? Duke L. Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson reveal how the Christian's call to bring about racial healing is more than an economic conversation, and it moves far beyond what is the most just response. They provide a Christian vision of compassion, love, and why the church ought to be caring for those who are hurting. It's about opening our eyes and our hearts to the black pain around us and finding ways that each of us can bring healing in our own communities. In today's podcast, Duke L. Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson talk about why they needed to write a theological case for reparations and why it's important to support and love hurting communities. They discuss reasons why Christians debate this issue of reparations and ways that church leaders and pastors can properly address systemic sins at church and ways to address 
racial justice issues, and reparations in church meetings. They also talk about white supremacy as a theft of truth, a theft of power, and a theft of wealth, and ways that we should talk with our children about racism, and what the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us about love and reparations. Duke Kwan is the lead pastor at Grace Meridian Hill, a neighborhood congregation in the Grace DC network that is committed to building cross-cultural community in Washington, DC. And Dr. Gregory Thompson is a pastor, scholar, artist, and producer whose work focuses on race and equity in the United States. Their book, Reparations, A Call for Repentance and Repair, is published by Brazos Press. I pray this conversation encourages all of us to develop more empathy and more compassion for our Black communities, and that each of us think about creatively what we can all do to support those who are hurting. I also want to give special thanks to a few friends who helped me prep for this conversation. First, a shout out to Liz from In the Black Seat podcast. She's always texting me with helpful insights and advice on ways to lovingly approach racial and social justice issues. I also want to thank my friend Jake for his Christian perspective on these issues. You can catch the YouTube video from today's podcast and the archive of all past episodes on my blog at mikedelgado.org. Here's our conversation. Thank you both for being on the podcast. And I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about this week. It was a very, very tense week as we were waiting for trial verdict for Derek Chauvin. And I'm kind of curious about how you felt this week with the verdict and what you are thinking about as you chat with other Christians. Well, first of all, thanks for having us, Mike. Uh, good to be able to join you here. The Chauvin verdict and, and the trial itself is certainly, first and foremost, a, uh, a tragic thing, or at least it needs to be seen against that backdrop. Um, African-American man being murdered um, and the trial even to the last minute being uh, questionable as far as the outcome of the verdict. Um, that itself, I think, is a commentary on the, the, the sad state of uh, racial realities in America. The outcome of the verdict itself, of course, it, it brings some measure of satisfaction that there might be uh, the possibility of accountability, um, especially in the realm of police brutality. Uh, that hasn't always been the case. The phrase that's been on my mind and my heart a lot this week, this the past two weeks, is proximate justice. Right? Mm. It's a it's a little taste. It's a fragment of the, what we long for, the fullness of which I think God will give us one day. Uh, but for now, it's a it's just a piece, just a taste. Proximate justice, and so I think that brings proximate joy, pr- proximate relief. Uh, still lament, still sadness, uh, but grateful uh, for this small step. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would just echo that. I mean, I think it's obviously tragic for everybody involved. Um, and I think in one way, it's an embodiment of the kind of um, approximate truth telling that we long for in this in this culture. On the other hand, I think it can be and, and is, in fact, already being used by people to suggest that, see, our system isn't racist after all. Mm. And so I think you know, it's incumbent on all of us to, to understand that that this is a moment uh, in a story that is much larger and to and to remember the, the larger story and not to compress it to this moment one way or the other. But it's, it's a much larger history that we're engaging and responding to. Um, and that's what we kind of have to keep our eye on that. Yeah. And I think you just summed it up 
that comment about see systemic risk racism isn't in our culture that here's an example of it your book fleshes this out in detail and i first wanted to start by asking you a little bit about the title of your book because you could have went with a title like um, how to love your neighbor sort of title that would have been very appealing um but titling a book reparations a christian call for repentance and repair which i thought is appropriate and right can be off-putting to some. And I was wondering maybe you can kind of talk about your choice in the title. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think this is a book about reparations and uh, reparations is certainly a, an expression as all good things are of love of one's neighbor. Um, but I think part of what we were doing, as we say, you know, fairly explicitly is this is Christian language um theologically and and we're not doing anybody any favors by continuing to talk about reality other than as it is and so in some ways it was a moral choice but it, it, not just in some ways in almost every way it was a moral choice to say are we going to talk about this in a way that describes the world as we see it and in a with language that has been broadly used um in african-american communities or are we going to decide uh to to not do that so that we can shelter white people and make sure that they feel comfortable with our book and thereby enact the logic of white supremacy itself. That, that is a, that was a moral choice. Um, and so we thought, well, this is actually a book about reparations. It is a Christian book in the sense that we are seeking to draw on and be obedient to the Christian scriptures and theological tradition. Um, and so why don't we, uh, why don't we renounce euphemism? And actually talk about what we're talking about and model as Christian men um, that this is this is what we expect from from the church to be able to believe that the word made flesh, <laughs> which is what we order our lives around, actually has, you know, uh, implications for our discourse in the way that we do it. So I think that that that's how we approach. It. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Duke. Yeah, no, just to add to one thing that Greg alluded to, uh, but just to expand on it, uh, reparations is only off-putting and unfamiliar in certain quarters. <laughs> um, it, it is a word that's used quite comfortably um, and historically has been so uh, in the black community, um, you know, more so more so in sub, some sub-communities among African-Americans than others. Um, but uh, so just to say, it's important to acknowledge it's it's a tricky word only for some, not for all. And secondly, that our choice, our moral choice, as Greg put it, uh, to use it is partly itself an act of humility, uh, that we are submitting ourselves to the language, the terminology, and the conceptual categories that have been uh, built, um, pondered, uh, propagated, taught, and uh, beheld uh, by African Americans before us. Uh, to try to talk about its substance, but to use different language itself would be an act of uh, uh, wresting control into our own hands that we don't deserve, right? Um, we, we need to submit ourselves to ongoing conversations that we have refused thus far to be a part. Well, I'm glad you used those words. I was wondering if maybe we can talk, talk a little bit about the concerns that you wanted to make sure to address when writing this book. I mean, from the introduction? Yeah, so... Um, I don't think I have the, all those memorized, um, but I, I do think I think there were a couple of concerns. One was, you know, why us? Um, why are we writing this book? And we're, you know, we're explicit in saying that 
reparations is by nature a two-party conversation. Um, it's, you know, a conversation between those who owe reparations and those to whom reparations are owed. And we're, we're very consciously speaking on one side of that. That is the first side of that, which means there are things that we must say largely along the lines of truth-telling, acknowledgement, confession, um, and exhortation. And then there are things that we must not say, which is, and here's what reparations ought to look like, right? Um, and so I think that that concern was one that we wrestled with early on in ourselves and, and heard from other people. And that is how we how we've answered it. You know, another was, does this um, in some ways perpetuate notions of victimization and paternalism? Um, and as we explain, like, I, I don't think so. I think what we're, we're talking about historical acts that have in fact taken place that haven't, that have in fact, and do in fact have enduring consequences. And this is in no way um, to caricature African-Americans as victims. Um, it is to say, it, it is to say, that that wrong has been done to them. Um, and so we think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to, to talk about. And another was, are we perpetuating divisions by using racialized categories? Um, and, you know, as we say in the introduction, we think that the categories are not the problem, but the social realities that gave rise to those categories are the problem. And so we're using sociological categories that tragically are familiar to all of us. And we, we want to be explicit about that. Um, Two more that I recall. One was about entitlement. Um, is this is this just perpetuating a climate of entitlement among African American communities? Um, we think that to be a profoundly problematic question. Um, but we we simply say um, no more than restitution of any kind presumes entitlement in any sort of you know criminal <laughs> situation. And 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 we want to recognize that there's a thinly concealed. Um, set of racial presumptions um, from white folks who ask those questions about black folks and and I and also a, a certain willingness to or unwillingness to acknowledge that the white middle class has been created by uh, government entitlement entitlements and that's a case that we make clear and then you know it's another one I'm sure we could talk about the final concern was just about which essentially coded is are we in, indebted to critical theory and have we if we taken that in wholesale um, and you know we respond to that in that in that, and I'd be happy to elaborate on that. But those are the those are the concerns that I remember, um, and I think we tried to address those, you know, pretty straightforwardly. No doubt. And I want to say that this book is a super great example of what allyship looks like. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like the importance of supporting marginalized groups when you're not a part of it. Yeah. Um, no, I was just thinking about yeah how you worded that question, Mike, and I appreciate it. Um, I mean, it's important because. Our destinies are bound up together, right? Uh, Dr. King spoke about this often, um, and uh, Desmond Tutu also in, in what happened in South Africa, right? Ubuntu. Uh, so we, we are we are one, and therefore, uh, um, I mean, there's a way in which allyship always can tend to become sort of this performative, uh, sort of public gestural kind of thing. And 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 and, and I know, of course, we're here talking about the real thing. Um, this is, it's important because we are in it together. Um, uh, and, um, when one of us is not free, none of us are, are free. And, and I think it's especially important for us to acknowledge, um, that, uh, we need to steward whatever resources, opportunities, experiences, and social or ecclesial power that we have in service to others. I mean, this is really the story of the gospel, Christ who, 
uh, did not consider equal, equality with God something to be exploited, but rather made himself a servant. He, he expended himself uh, for the good of others, um, died so that others might live. And I think in that same way, um, I mean, allyship at that root is nothing more than us uh, stewarding whatever uh, opportunities we have to lift up others um, and to expect the same of others, right? So it's not just a one-way street, and it's it's uh, a multi-directional um, friendship, neighborhoodship uh, that we share together. Um, and in this case, I'm grateful. Uh, we're grateful to be able to do that. Um, on uh, on behalf of our african-american friends and neighbors yeah and i want to just add to that i think that the the category i, I understand the the substance of the meaning of the language of allyship i think our book is is in some ways an expression of neighborliness um and it's not predicated it it, it uh it acknowledges and i think in some ways responds to there are the fact that there are these distinct groups of people who need to ally themselves with one another. But, you know, I mean, and, and that sociologically and historically is absolutely true. And we recognize that. And that's why we say the reparations is a two party conversation. At the same time, what Duke said in alluding to Dr. King and Frederick Douglass said the same thing, you know, at the head of the North Star newspaper, like this is an expression of um, not of not simply of allyship across boundaries, but of a but of solidarity. Um, and, a, and an attempt to redraw boundaries around us to make one community that that has the responsibility to repair this this nation. And so we're, we we ourselves felt the tension between the kind of universalist anthropology that the Christian faith gives us in the Imago Dei and the sort of sociological particularities that require us to have these kind of racialized conversations. And we're trying to hold those two things together. As you're writing and researching, I'm curious about why you see so much division from the Christian perspective on reparations, because at the heart of a Christian, we want justice. We want to love our neighbor. Um, but when it comes to reparations, Christians can be so divided on how they look at it. Well, I guess I would think of it concentrically, and I'll start with an outer ring. Um, I think that some of those divisions are related to the kind of pragmatics of it, of how, how might it, how might it take shape? How could we possibly do what we're trying to do? And so some of the level as we've seen it, um, some, the, some of the conversations are at the level of, of the complexity of application and people are divided about that. Then there's, you know, a kind of a ring in, um, of, you know, real confusion about, about the, the language of reparations itself, notions of political economy and who is, who is on the hook and who is not um, and who gets included in those to whom reparations are owed and who are not. And those are, those are, I think, actually complicated questions around, around political economy. And, and so that's a, that's a ring in. I think I, I saw another, another ring in, in terms of what we hear. Um, it starts to take on a, a slightly personal hue, which is why should I have to pay for something that I don't, that I wasn't implicated in or that I wasn't, you know, complicit in. Um, and it, it's, it's, there's a very discernibly defensive tone that, that is at the heart of a lot of these, these things, which, you know, in our own view is a, is a, 
both an extraordinarily limited account of of social culpability and also um, a profoundly naive account of one's own personal history. Um, but then at the core, I really do believe that um, American evangelicalism is what, and I'm, we're talking about where a lot of those particular concerns come from. My own view is that it is a cultural project that consistently mistakes itself for a theological project. And at the heart of that cultural project is American exceptionalism um, and the inability to acknowledge that something this tragic has happened and continues to have social effect. And I, I believe that that is perpetuated by pastors who refuse to tell the truth about this history, who continue to try to minimize it. And I think it is also shielded by pastors who continually uh, overly or exclusively personalize the gospel um, with, you know, what King calls sanctimonious trivialities and continue to form people to not actually know the truth about what happened and to, and in a correlative way, and I'll stop with this, prejudice their hearers against people who raise these issues by calling them liberal or un-American or woke or social justice warriors. I think that tragically, part of the reason there is division, and I, I don't actually know how much division there is. I think that there's almost a uniform hostility mm -hmm. to in the church. And I think that is directly related to the types of um, homiletic and spiritual formation that are at this hour taking place in much of American evangelicalism. And I fully lay the blame for the in, inability of the American church that we are talking about, the, the inability of that church to seriously countenance something that is a fundamental part of Christian ethical tradition. I lay the blame for that fully at the at the feet of those pastors. And I really don't have that much to add, except simply to say it's important. Again, this is repeating what Greg just said, that we don't want to know this, see this, embrace and understand this. And then, of course, there's perceived threats and uh, a balking at the perceived cost of this or that implication. But it begins, first and foremost, with the refusal simply to see, as we talk about it in, in our book, the refusal to see the atrocities that were committed by white supremacy, the responsibility that we bear for them, um, and then the significant work that it'll take to repair them. I mean, we really would prefer to believe in mythologies that give us permission to move on or move forward or however directionally we want to use that language in terms of ignoring the past. Um, we, we don't see because we don't want to see. And uh, reparations is rejected because we prefer it simply to be such, rejected and and uh, forgotten. There's a willfulness behind that that I think itself is damning. What would you say to the pastor who's listening in who is getting educated and looking at systemic sin, looking at white supremacy, who's beginning to acknowledge really the original sins of America built on slavery, built on racism and discrimination, and wants to start making some changes, wants to start to address these things in the right way. And I was wondering, maybe you can share maybe some practical steps maybe they can take. Maybe they'd never address social justice issues from the pulpit, but now they're maybe they've read your book and they're convinced that they need to start to address these social sins, but they're not quite sure of like a practical way to begin to uh, bring it into the church. Like, is it part of the curriculum in Sunday school? Is it uh, from the pulpit? Is it a Friday night study? Um, 
I guess I'm just open to your suggestions for the pastor who wants to make some changes. Like they realize I've never addressed this and I need to. Well, so from my, I think this for, this addressing has two horizons to it. One is, you know, how the pastor forms him or herself in the, in this process of growth and the things that they do in terms of apprenticing themselves to African-American intellectual um, and theological traditions and literary traditions, and also consciously building relationships of where they learn um, it, from African-American communities. I think that that's, that's part of it. In terms of their own work, I, I think the things that you've mentioned are, are really critical, at, at least when we're talking foundationally. And that is, you know, as, as I've said before, you know, your average, I think, American Christian knows more about the white American Christian knows more about the church in Iran than they do the black church in their own town. And I think that that for pastors to educate themselves and to begin to teach and preach about those things, to use African-Americans as um, examples and illustrations, you know, positive examples. Um, and then certainly book discussion groups, uh, certainly Sunday school classes. Um, things like this that I think are are going to be helpful because remember we're working at the level of the of basic education right now and at the level of opening up the a kind of a malformed evangelical theological imagination to even imagine the possibility and that that has homiletic and sacramental and liturgical and educational um, and you know very practical practical shape. And I, I think pastors are going to have to look at every avenue they have for formation and begin to think how they can inject these things into that, into those avenues. Mike, I, I think I'd want to say that, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's important for people just to go for it and try things. Um, because I really do think a lot of what holds people back is simply a fear um, and, and um, sort of a self uh, uh, an instinct to preserve your own reputation or self-image or, or whatever it might be. Uh, the fear of making mistakes itself paralyzes so many pastors uh, from doing the risky work of laying oneself vulnerable, uh, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're a, a, a white minister. Um, so th there's a part of me that wants to say, just do something. On the other hand, I, I do want to... Um, raise the concern of, uh, of ministers, and I see this in myself, uh, seeking to act fueled by personal anxiety. Uh, so sort of this, this restlessness of, well, I, I just need to do something and I just need to, and, and really not look like those guys over there or look passive or look um, like a white supremacist ministry or, or whatever it might be, right? Um, and, and I think, that is something that we need to be honest about. That's something that we need to keep our eye on in our hearts, that um, sort of performative instinct and really self-preservationist instinct, right? How do I do things for the optics of it uh, rather than the substantive transformational uh, sort of work that needs to happen? Um, I, I, I want to make sure that we know that the kind of change uh, that needs to happen in our lives is spiritual leaders and in our churches is essentially liturgical. It's a deep, slow um, catechesis of the soul. It's formational. It's, it's multifaceted. It, it's the music that forms us. It's the books we read. It's the people that we're mentored by. There's a holism to it that needs to happen for us to really uh, start moving in the direction um, that we need to go in. Um, so just to say, um, th that there's a, there's a patience that needs to be preached, 
um, to this process, even as I'm also saying, take a risk and, and don't be afraid to fail. Um, because if it's taken this long, and again, liturgically, this multifaceted cultural formation that's happened uh, in American churches uh, for hundreds of years, and this is part of the theological inheritance or or at least religious inheritance that we've received, how long do we think it'll take to undo that? Uh, what what counter-movements and counter-formational processes do we really expect to put on a new sort of way of seeing things and a new way of behaving, a new way of ministering to our local communities? That's going to take a long time. We should presume it'll take a long time, um, and we need to take it slow uh, for those reasons. And I think your book is an excellent way for pastors to begin to get educated on the issues, especially as you outline the history of white supremacy, the history of racism in America. Um, so you've done all this tremendous work to provide education. I'm curious about, as you have been getting responses from different Christian leaders and pastors on your book. Well, so far it's been a range of, of responses. You know, we, we have seen a good amount of enthusiasm um, by readers and that's of course encouraging personally but more importantly it, it gives us hope for what might come out of it you know our, our goal always was not simply to write a book but rather through a book uh, to see uh, people mobilized to see churches mobilized in the actual work of repair racial repair itself and so the enthusiasm has been encouraging of course as we've mentioned there's been resistance as well different pastors um, or just christians in general who from the outset have been skeptical uh, and whose Resistance really is just a confirmation of their own priors. I think, right? They, it's it's a, as we said, it's a hard topic, and and uh, many are resistant to it. We're seeing that as well. Uh, but one interesting response I think that sort of emerged are people that are overall um, glad for the work, but frustrated that we didn't give more specifics. Um, and that's something we've heard uh, on on several occasions. Um, it's almost becoming a trend among some people. Um, and that's fine and well. Uh, I, I think some have actually noticed that that is in part by design. Um, we even say this in the beginning of uh, the final chapter, the chapter seven, that we intended that to be more of a framework than a playbook, uh, that we wanted to give moral categories and a broad outline of the kind of work that people could do. Uh, but we also wanted to encourage people or really uh, say people the, way, the right way to do this is to do it through relationships and apprenticeship under black leadership uh, uh, to not simply paternalistically go out thinking you have all the answers and especially by no means quoting us as having given them the answers <laughs> we don't want to be responsible for that uh, but rather to say we are uh, in a posture of uh, repentant chastened humility right we know we are behind in the game in this. We don't know what to do. Please tell us what we should do. Uh, please uh, be in relationship with us and we will follow. And to take that um, posture in our local communities and to take it a step at a time, what we didn't want to do is to give people a sense that here's your action plan, go for it. And we have a bunch of people running outside, offering up reparations to their black neighbors, right? Uh, uh, the last thing that we would want. And, and some of that is because, as we talk about in the book, it's important for people to cultivate the necessary virtues to do this well. What we describe as becoming a people of repair, not just uh, not just executing the practices of repair. And some of that is, uh, as we describe it, the renunciation of control. 
cultivating uh, a letting go of always having to have the answers, which is why I think it's interesting to hear that response. People saying, but what are the answers? It's like, I mean, not to sound too Zen or Yoda about it, but it's like, that is exactly the question you must let go of, <laughs> right? Mm. You must die to needing to know uh, because this is exactly how we got to this place in, in the first place. Um, follow, listen, die, love, right? Yeah, and I feel like your book is going to be really helpful for especially church groups to like read it together in community and to have discussion. Because you're right, it's not like here's the five things you need to do after you read this book. It's really to create dialogue. Like what are some ways that we can better love? What are some ways to um, get better educated, uh, to acknowledge these social sins? What would be your advice for the church group um, or community group that's reading through reparations? And um, there might be some conflicts, some debates happening uh, within those circles, I guess, to, I guess, lead these conversations with empathy. Yeah, you know, I think just, and it's, this in some ways will follow up on what Duke just said. I think people have to remember where we are uh, in terms of the largely white church in this reparations conversation. Um, we're sort of where we were in February of 2020, where we're just now realizing that there's this virus, but we don't know what's going on. And it's absurd to say, well, like, what are we going to do about it? Um, you know, at a certain level. And then to say, um, I mean, because we're, the, what we're going to do about it is figure out together, right? Nobody's expecting, you know, Anthony Fauci in February of 2020 to say, here's what the vaccine looks like. What, what we're just doing is saying, Hey, everybody, there's a, there's a potential global pandemic that's happening here. And we need you to begin to prepare your imagination for a world that you couldn't imagine yesterday. But now, now it's coming and we want you to begin to prepare for that. We really think that's where it's certainly the evangelical church is with respect to the reparations conversation. It's just emerging. It feels distant. It feels confusing. It feels like maybe this doesn't really have anything to do with me. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do it about it anyway. Um, but it's coming. This conversation is coming. And so what we're trying to do is say, as you're doing this with church groups, just realizing, realize that what we're doing is pr trying to provide of a picture for you of a world that evangelicalism has not yet imagined, <laughs> which is a world where we might actually take constructive reparative action uh, materially and concretely about reparations in this country. And I think that rather than um, sort of jumping in and judging each other about all these different things, I think what we need to do is recognize we are very much at the beginning of this conversation. And all we're trying to do is get people to open themselves up to, okay, white supremacy really is like a cultural disorder. Reparations really is a Christian response to theft. Um, and we really are the people of Jesus who are now obligated to take this up. Now let's think about this creatively together. What I want is for churches to think about themselves like Johnson and Johnson and, and Pfizer and Moderna and, you know, um, uh, others thought of themselves, which is like, we got to go into the lab here with the things that we know and figure out in, co in collaboration with people around the world, how we're going to do this. And that's, that's where we actually are in this process. And that's why some of the, um, and I'll say this and then shut up. That's why some of the reviews that are coming out that are saying, well, these guys didn't tell us what to do. What that indicates to us is not a failure of specificity on my part, on our part, but, a, but it's failure of like a recognition about where we actually are in this process. 
on the part of the reviewers, uh, especially when those people use the fact that we don't know how to to address this fully as justification for dismissing the concept. It would be the equivalent of somebody saying to Fauci in February of last year, well, if you can't show me what the vaccine is, then guess what? The virus isn't real. It's ridiculous. But that is what a number of these of these reviews are saying. And I think that we really need to understand that we're in a very different place than a lot of these people uh, want us to be. And I love the fact that you're calling uh, white supremacy a disorder. And I also like to use use the term theft. I think it's very appropriate. And I know in the book you outline the theft of truth, the theft of power, the theft of wealth. Can you talk a little bit about the theft? I think I think that's a really important point that more Christians need to hear about, about how white supremacy and racism has been a theft. Well, we describe uh, theft as the essence and the primary social effect of um, white supremacy. Uh, theft, uh, what you might describe biblically, as a, a violation of the eighth commandment, um, which isn't to say that's all that white supremacy is or does, but that's just one lens through which we can see the evils that it, it, it has wrought. Um, and, and that's really important because uh, when we talk about white supremacy, there are a lot of people that tend to look at that as sort of this nebulous idea and nothing more than an idea. And so to talk about white supremacy and, and its impact and reparations as connected to it, um, it, it's sort of this unintelligible train of thought. If you just leap from white supremacy to reparations um no we're, we're, what makes us uh, what makes reparations morally logical is when we can identify that thefts robberies have been committed if the problem with racism in america was simply broken relationships reparations is not the proper solution <laughs> uh, that the proper solution would be reconciliation, the repair of relationship. Now, that is biblical and that is true. Our argument is that it's not less than that. It's simply more than that. Uh, More has has happened because of racism. More evil has been perpetrated because of racism than simply that which has resulted in broken relationships or misguided ideas about other image bearers, right? Racist thoughts and attitudes and beliefs um, that there actually has been a a, a robbery, as you mentioned, of, of truth, power, and wealth. And so then what we need to do, as we have tried to do, is open up the Bible and say, well, what has the Bible told us is the proper response to theft? Um, not, not the proper response to racism, generically speaking, or the proper response to broken relationships, but to theft. And the answer I think we discover is two things, which we describe as the twofold moral logic of reparations. First, the response of restitution, which is that you need to give back what was stolen. And secondly, the response of restoration, which is motivated by neighbor love, to give back to the victim of robbery what was stolen, even if you yourself are not personally culpable, sort of a a, a surrogate restitutionary role that you play. (laughs) You give as if you had taken, but you didn't take, but you give anyway, simply out of neighbor love. That's a great phrase. The the, uh, primary example of that in scripture is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, So if your starting point isn't theft, none of the rest of this makes sense. That's right. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I got to say that that was probably one of the most powerful parts of your book when I began to read through the story 
of the Good Samaritan with a new lens. It was just very, very convicting because that that parable speaks to us on so many different levels. But when you layered it with America's sins of racism and white supremacy and discrimination and the Good Samaritan story of like, are you going to let this person pass by? Are you not going to help? Are you not going to try to help heal the situation? I thought you you both did a beautiful job, like using that parable, because that's gospel. And 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 I just want to point out, Mike, that uh, you know what the evangelical church traditionally does with that parable is to use it as an example of benevolence ministry, right? Mercy ministry, charity, caring for those that are harmed or hurt on the roadside. And that's true, and that's a proper biblical application of that one layer of it. But as you mentioned, that appreciating the way in which we use that to sort of unpack some of these racial realities, that is something that's simply learned from black Christians, right? The way that Dr. King taught that parable time and again in his uh, ministry, in his public life, the way that Tony, Tony Morrison, the example that was used also in that chapter, uses it as sort of a, a framework to refigure uh, the atrocities of antebellum uh, slavery. Um, th- th- this is also something that filled the imagination of Howard Thurman. Uh, again and again, if we pay attention to the way that African-American Christians have read scripture, ta-da, <laughs> there, there it is. And, and, and we say that, I mentioned that simply to say, uh, again, that the book itself is an attempt to model the kind of apprenticing ourselves uh, underneath the leadership of, of black Christians, black ministry leaders, black thinkers, um, black uh, activists um, to learn something that has heretofore been obscured uh, to the white evangelical imagination. There, there's a there's a, a treasure trove of spiritual realities that we have not yet seen that we need to start to encounter collectively um, and to learn uh, from our black brothers and sisters. I'm curious about the critics to this Christian view of reparations you presented in this book. Uh, what are they missing? I think as we, when I was talking earlier about the kind of concentric nature of the responses that that different people are don't have different pieces in place. Some are missing, frankly, historical knowledge about what has happened in this country. Um, and they have a very distorted view of of American history and and the impact of of American racism on millions of people's lives. I think some some folks are missing like basic historical knowledge on this. Um, some people are missing uh, an awareness of our own theological tradition, and I think that that's what we try to point out in, in chapters four through six. Um, that, so they, some people are missing that. Um, I would say, though, that there are two things that are most troubling to me in in what I see. And one is one is a lack of self-criticism. I think they're missing the capacity to self-criticize and how many it's, it has been not surprising since some ways the most predictable thing in the world, given what we've written in the book. But it is distressing to see how many Christians who do love God and want to love their neighbors. Um, they speak about this before they are ready. And they seem not to know that. Um, and that that's one thing that is missing. And the other thing, frankly, that that I think is is probably the it's one is probably the worst thing, because it's it's one thing to not be aware of yourself. It's a whole other thing to not be aware of your neighbors. And I would say that what they're missing is tears. I would say what they're missing is empathy. I, I have am frankly astonished 
um, and I shouldn't be, but I am, um, by the degree to which people will take this issue on as an alleged thought leader and have apparently zero recognition of how brutal the pain has been how, how, and that it continues to be how deep the discouragement is in African-American communities in this country, how, how difficult every day is in light of the things that they see. It is, it, it is so lack of self-knowledge, yes, but the lack of empathy and tears um, is deeply discouraging to me. And I think that that is, that for me is, is what is missing. And I, in some ways want to say, I don't think people should be talking about this until they have been willing to weep over the reality of American history. Yeah, and I'd simply add to that latter point, Greg, um, proximity to black neighbors, friends, um, and black Christians, right? And this isn't universally the case, but oftentimes those that are most resistant simply are isolated from the lived realities um, found in the black community. Um, there, there's a there's a confidence that's unfounded. <laughs> there's, there's a confidence in, exactly in their, right. you know, like even strangely the the audacity to speak on behalf of black people right as if as if we know um absent of real relationships i think that leads to empathy and weeping right like i i I wouldn't care so deeply personally if i wasn't staring into the faces of dear friends with whom i weep about all other kinds of things right so you're just bound up together in life and love and sorrow and and grief of all kinds and so when you speak on these things or when you read these things or you address these things it's never just an analytical exercise it's never theoretical there's flesh and blood realities that are always tied to them and that doesn't mean you agree on everything but it certainly changes the tone and tenor of how you talk about it (laughs) and that's why it's it's it, it it's almost without fail easy to read uh, how people respond to it, whether they are surrounded by um, black folks or, or a black community. And obviously I'm talking about more than just the token. I've got that black friend, um, but someone that's in your heart, someone that you carry with you. Um, there's no other way forward apart from that. For all the parents listening in who want to raise anti-racist children, who want to raise children who are deeply empathic. Uh, I guess your advice as a dad uh, to to other dads and other moms on how to raise up, I guess, empathic children. You know, it's been a journey for me. It's something that, that I, I think and pray over often um, is we have made these topics front and center conversations in the life of our family. And some of that is because of just the, the, the times that we're in. Um, especially living in Washington, D.C., uh, with things erupting all last year and everything. There's no way uh, you really have to try hard not to have your kids engaged in the real world in which they're growing up uh, to not address race these days, which maybe itself is part of the answer to the question. <laughs> like, Don't deny it. Don't shelter your kids in a way uh, that's uh, really um, unhealthy for them. Um, but from an early age, we raised our kids with an awareness of racial realities, beginning with their own identity. Um, you know, some of this is uh, taken from African-American sociologists that point this out, you know, that it's kids notice difference in skin color and race 
far earlier than we think. It's actually the, the parents, the grownups that are stifling their exploration of that because we're uncomfortable with it. Um, but foster it, you know, unleash it. Um, but it, it also means talking, for instance, with our kids about their Korean American identity, teaching them to celebrate it and then teaching them to notice differences. Um, I think one thing, for example, that we've had to keep our eye on as we teach our kids about civil rights history or, you know, and they're still young, but we're pushing it on them, uh, right? Uh, as they learn about um, the brokenness of even our present and the realities of racism is to make sure that we are balancing that, for example, with uh, stories of black joy and dignity so that they're not actually incidentally uh, being uh, sort of cultivating this this picture of blackness as only tragic and sorrowful. Um, and of course, that means they need to not just be reading books about this stuff. They need to be befriending black friends and hanging out with their buddies and, and experiencing that as like, hey, you know, your, your friend, they are, they, they are who they are. These are real people that we're talking about. So exposing them in relationships like that, sending them to schools where there's diversity, at least enough for them to encounter people with difference. Um, and so that they're having to practice that on a daily basis and then debriefing constantly um, in the home and, uh, again, addressing it very deliberately and intentionally. What would you say, Greg? Um, I, it's a great question, and, and I certainly don't think I'm a paradigm for how to do this. Um, I would say that generally we we haven't raised our kids with explicitly like anti-racist um, language. I think, I mean, obviously doing what I do and studying the things that I study, I mean, they've seen portraits of King and African-American art and stuff all over our house. And <clears throat> we moved them to Memphis um, so they get, so we could be in this particular community um, and do the work. And so I think we've been, we've, we've been putting things in front of them um, all, all the while. But I think what we really want for our children is, is one, for them to be deeply committed to the work of love in their lives, that they understand that their their lives are here to love God and to love their neighbor in everything that they do. And then secondly, to have the capacity to do that contextually. Um, and that requires us for, that has required us to expose our kids to the world as we find it, as it is, um, and not um, this the kind of like highly manicured version um, that it, that they that many people like to believe, and so I think that one of the things that has been interesting is my kids are getting older. Um, watching them is like they are themselves taking up the work of love, and now <clears throat> because they've learned about the world and they and we haven't sheltered them from any of that, they're now take, taking up their own improvisations of love. And mm-hmm. I think giving them the freedom to know your work is love, your place is here. Now you figure it out. And I, I think w- w- the reason that feels important to me is that um, I think a paint by numbers sort of growing kids God's way sort of version of moral formation actually constrains the theological imagination. It constrains the moral imagination because it, it makes children afraid to take risks. Um, and I don't know what else cruciform love is but that, uh, taking a risk on behalf of your neighbor. And so I think there has to be a freedom you know, Obviously, an urging to love, a deep education about context, but also a freedom to experiment and to try to into what love, what shape is love going to take, and what did you learn from that, and how can we grow and how can we try it again? Um, and so, that that requires them to renounce fear, 
um, because fear, as you know, drives out love. Beautiful. And you both are just modeling what this looks like. So thank you so much uh, for for everything you're doing as pastors, as academics, and writing this brand new book. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Duke L. Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson about their new book entitled Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair, published by Brazos Press. So how has this conversation on reparations impacted you? Let me know on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at MikeDelgado.org. Next time, we're honored to learn from Dr. Tama Bryant Davis about interpersonal trauma and the Bible, as well as the church systems that allow spiritual abuse to exist. Dr. Tama is a psychologist, professor, and ordained minister who provides us a helpful lens for understanding biblical stories of trauma through the victim's eyes. So that's next time. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care and we'll chat more next time.